0: listen reflect and absorb dear listeners Sairam and welcome to a radio series in which a divine discourse by Bhagavan is played in small parts and following each part a short discussion is undertaken to reflect on the message this series is a part of radio size Thursday live broadcast that goes on air at 730 pm on Asia stream. Today's episode was first broadcast live on 12th December 2013 and was hosted by Prem from Team Radio Sai and Hari Shankar from the Sri Sathya Sai Central Trust. The discourses undertaken for study in this program are from the series of discourses delivered as part of the Summer Course in Indian Culture and Spirituality in the year 1990. The clips played in this episode are from the discourse delivered on 27th May 1990.
1: Sadam, dear listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Shravanam Mananam Nadidhyasanam. It's a wonderful, chill Thursday night here, and as always, it's time for that part of the Thursday Live segment where we listen to Swami's discourses and try to absorb the beautiful and profound message Swami gives therein. This is Prem from Team Radio Sai, and to join me in this program today, we have Brother Hari Shankar from the Sri Sai Central Trust. And before we begin this program, we offer our most humble pranams at Bhagwan's lotus feet and pray to him that Swami speaks through us.
2: Sairam Hari oh, Sairam Priyam, thank you for having me on this week
1: Yes, and it's a beautiful topic uh, which you're going through of course every discourse has been as revealing as the previous one Yes. and the way beautifully Swami is going through these discourses as we were just discussing some time ago how Swami is going from a level to the other you know, almost like how we studied maths in our schooling. Every time I see these discourses, that's the one which comes to my mind where, you know, when you study maths, when you learn addition, you felt that that's all maths had. Yes. And then you introduce subtraction. And you said, oh, that's that's more interesting. And then you were told that, no, there is something called multiplication. And I'm sure that it's endless. <laughs> you you get differential calculus. Yes, it's Swami is
2: literally peeling the layers of uh, knowledge, right. revealing them one by one, and letting us digest it bit by bit.
1: Right. And it's been such a wonderful pleasure going through this entire discourses. Mm-hmm. We've completed eight discourses. We've attempted something like a comprehensive summary. I don't know how well that went. And now we have the ninth discourse, which means we are the second half of the whole series. There's Sixteen discourses in all, and now it's the ninth discourse. Right. In that discourse, the theme is Egoism and Attachment.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a different world, word altogether. Egoism, what it means to a person a normal person in society who is is living regular life yes compared to one who is taken to the spiritual path or even who's started the process of inquiry isn't it
2: yes so generally we tend to associate this word with pride and arrogance so we say a person is egoistic so then we say yeah he has pride or he has got arrogance these are the qualities we associate but here when we say egoism it is a very simple term it just talks about your interpretation of yourself as a Person that is different from the world around you. So, as an individual that is separate from the world. So, egoism is just, you can say it is merely the sense that I, of I, that I am. And then there is, you see, the moment you say I am and you see a world around you, you classify that as the other. So, that is the egoism that is talked about. And likewise, attachment, it comes as an attachment to egoism. And the sense of mine. Something that belongs to me as distinct from something that belongs to others is something that arises almost spontaneously with the idea of I.
1: Right. In fact, you know, when Swami was going through these discourses, one thing which, uh, to put it in a sentence, Swami talks about body. Mm-hmm. Swami says it is an instrument, it is a kshetra, it's a dwelling place for the Atman. Okay. And then Swami talks about the senses. They are important because that is the window between the world and the body. Mm-hmm. The interior and the exterior is yes. connected through the senses And then Swami says the senses by themselves are powerless Because yes. they don't have the ability to choose mm-hmm. They just go by their uh, utility And then Swami says to make that decision Or that which actually processes what the senses give mm-hmm. is the mind Right. And then Swami says that mind is also something uh, A very fun- a functional entity Yes. And then Swami spoke about Buddhi that Buddhi is the one which decides what is right, what is wrong, what right. is enough, what isn't enough. Yeah. And what is more important, what is less important. And then uh, Swami gave this beautiful analogy of you know how the sun illumines the moon. The moon sends the light f- forth. And right. in the night, your street is lit by the moonlight. Yes. And Swami said, similarly, the Atman actually illumines the Buddhi. Yes. The Buddhi illumines the mind and the mind illumines the senses and so forth. And Swami said, but between the Atman and the Buddhi, That which shadows the light which comes from the Atman Hmm. is this subtle ego. Yes. So that's how Swami put ego in this whole uh, discussion of what we have gone through in this discourse. That explains it. You know, that which actually propels you to act. That which actually gives you the motive to gather or grab or do good or do right, do wrong. That feeling is this feeling of individualistic the feeling that I am an individual, exactly. separate from what is around me. Uh,
2: even as you were uh, saying this, one example that came to mind. So, when I was very young, I used to be a uh, great fan of the stories of Sherlock Holmes. Okay. And if you see, like Sherlock Holmes is a very special person because he has very keen sense of observation. Right. And uh, of course, as a youngster, I was always trying to develop that. Like, how can I become a detective with that keen sense of mm-hmm. observation and deduction? But now, even as you are speaking, I realize if I juxtapose or if I contrast how sherlock holmes was in relation to watson so the reason that somebody like sherlock holmes can i mean his brain is such that or his buddhi works in such a way as to be able to look at sift through all the different sensory stimuli that come in and look for what is important is first because he calls himself as a detective he says i sherlock holmes i'm a detective that comes first okay which is the reason why his, you know buddhi chooses to Uh, taken all the sensory stimuli in that particular way whereas Watson has a different way of uh, describing himself so he is perhaps saying that I am a doctor I am a surgeon so his way of looking at a person is entirely different from the way that uh, Sherlock Holmes would look at so that's why that sense of I am and what that I am says about itself comes way before you know the buddhi and the Mind, you know, or the intellect,
1: and it's very profound what you said. Because one of the techniques which Swami gave in silencing the mind or mm. instilling the mind, Swami says, "Tell yourself that I'm not an animal; I'm a man." Right. You know, the yeah. identification problem has okay. to be sorted out first. Absolutely. And Swami says, "Then you take it forward to I am not man." Yes. I am. Yes. Swami says, "You know, go to that state, because there are states even in your uh, daily living yes. where you detach yourself for, from this body, from this existence." And of course, it's easy to talk about, but isn't it very difficult to comprehend what that state is? Yes, but
2: that is the exercise which you must constantly keep doing. Because as you said, you know, being able to look at who you are defining yourself to be. I am this or I am that. And everything else follows from that. Your actions, your words, your thoughts. Right.
1: It's like a student. Hmm. A student who is studying for medicine. Yeah. And maybe a student who is studying for what somebody would call a lesser degree. Yeah. Both are students, both are dependent on their parents, Hmm. but what one is studying for makes him special than the other. Exactly. And you know, we might be in the same state mentally, but maybe to start with, as Swami says, that shraddha, the desire to reach that state, maybe will qualify you a little more than somebody who is in the similar state, but may not be thinking of such things.
2: Yes. So, the earnestness, I think that is the defining quality as, as far as we are concerned. Like even though, as you say, we may not have reached that level or as it may be really so difficult in our uh, daily lives, but it doesn't stop us from trying. Right. And I think uh, dwelling on this discourse and what Swami has, is going to speak about in the section that we are choosing to discuss today, I think that is really part of that process.
1: Right. And maybe you, oh, we'll quickly go through what Swami said in the couple of clips which we played right. uh, last week. Swami starts with that wonderful padyam as always. I think it's it's there in some of the verses which Shankracharya also has written. Exactly, yes. The Nirvana Shatakam. Yes. Something similar to that where Swami says I'm not I'm not the merit I'm that I've done, I'm not the sin, I'm not happiness, I'm not sorrow, I'm not uh Uvedas. I'm not the yagna. I'm not the food that I eat, I'm not the one who enjoys the food. Yeah. And he says I'm Sachidananda. And he says, you know, the above mantra is applicable to everybody. Just because Swami is standing at the podium and saying hmm. It's easy for us to say that yes, Of course, Swami is all what this man. You know, yes. Swami can say all this But the very next statement, Swami says That whatever I have said now applies to all of you hmm. And uh, Then Swami goes on From where He left the previous discourse Where He speaks about Satyam and Ritam I Being guess. important uh-huh. And where the mind should always remain In that state of oneness Yes Whether you really realize that or not To have that as the guiding principle of your actions, Mm -hmm. to believe that. And uh, I think uh, one of the discussions we had before Mm -hmm. might not be in the same forum in the afternoon satsang. I remember you making a very profound point about distinguishing feelings and emotions which we talk of as negative and those which we talk of as positive.
2: I remember this like just now when you brought it up. So most of us, we tend to think in very moralistic terms. We say we term certain actions or certain emotions as good and certain emotions and certain uh, acts of ours as bad. Right. Every day we do that, right? Yes. But if you look at this whole thing in a very different way and uh, if we look at certain acts which are consistent with us believing that we are just the body and the mind, that we are merely this individual composed of the body and the mind, And there are certain kinds of actions which are very closely linked to an idea that we are beyond this body and the mind. We are beyond just this individual. So, the definition of who we are is a much larger uh, definition. So, if I look at, for example, uh, feelings of, say, selfishness, jealousy, envy, anger, these are so consistent with myself thinking of being as being composed of just this body and the mind. Right. Or me as an individual is composed of the body and the mind. Or a little larger definition of just being uh, me. Yes, my family, you know, or my religion, and feelings of compassion, of peace, of love, of actions that you wish to bring freedom to the world. You want to rid uh, the world of suffering. These come from a very different place. Right. So that was one of the things that we had discussed in that particular session
1: putting it in a different way yeah. it means that every uh, emotion which we might remotely call negative also mm. will have its basis on the feeling that you are an individual that yes. feeling of you are separate from the others around you yes and the more you move towards the feeling that all are one yes you all these emotions of compassion of sympathy of empathy you know, being good and being kind and all that comes because your happiness now depends on more than yourself.
2: Yes, as someone once said, you are always going to be selfish. Right. It's just that definition of what that self is that that will distinguish who you are as whether you are a humanitarian or you are a person who is always looking for or a hedonist. Right.
1: You know? I think that's what even Dalai Lama has said once. Hmm. I believe the highest selflessness is highest selfishness.
0: Highest selfishness. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And uh, the other very beautiful point which Swami makes here is, mm. you know, about man being an animal which is after happiness. Of course, Swami doesn't say animal. Man being a being which is always after happiness. Yeah. And Swami puts it very beautifully saying that, you know, a man is walking down the street. Mm. And if he's happy and if he's peaceful, no one will come and ask him, what's the secret of your happiness? Why are you happy? But if he's looking morose, if he's looking downcast, people will always come and ask, what happened? Why are yes. you sad? Because being happy or being in a state of comfort is not something which is unnatural to man.
2: Uh, as I was going through the first part of the discourse mm-hmm. uh, and practically every discourse that Swami talks about, it, it is basically leading man to the secret of that happiness. Because uh, Swami in His compassion, He sees us, uh, watches us suffer needlessly uh, because of the kind of thoughts that we have or the kind of actions that we undertake. Uh, every discourse is an attempt to clarify that that intellect for us. So, uh, as you can see, uh, the end part of the uh, discourse—sorry, of the poem that uh, Swami recites at the beginning—and Swami says, "Like I am neither merit nor sin, neither happiness nor sorrow." So, uh, Swami says that the basis for happiness is basically distinguishing what you are not.
1: Right. Actually, it's it's interesting. Swami says neither happiness nor sorrow, because if you're walking down the road and laughing. Or giggling to yourself, even then people will think something wrong with you. Yes, they <laughs> <laughs> so, it it is actually the state of being at calm, at peace. That is, which is the natural state. Yes, And when you are able to be in that endlessly, I think that is what Swami would refer to as ananda or you know, complete state. And then Swami goes on to the story of uh, the debate between Shankaracharya and Mandana Mishra. Hmm. Uh, I think historically, this is more of a debate between... An Advaitin or a Vedantin and one who believes in materialism, isn't it?
2: Yes. So, at that time, you know, the prevalent philosophy in India at that time was to believe in rituals as the means to uh, achieve Godhood. Right. Uh, to divinity. So, uh, Shankaracharya, he revived the an interpretation of Upanishads. See, this also was a valid interpretation. You can actually read the entire Brahma Sutras or the Upanishads and interpret it completely in, uh, in the which form of say. karma. Yeah. yeah,
1: right. That's why it's called Karma Kanda.
2: And uh, Shankaracharya, he revived a more esoteric interpretation of Upanishads, equally valid, which is to talk about being, the Atma, so at every point of time, uh, going back to the individual is not merely an individual that is separate from God, as never being separate from the from divinity, right. always being the self, always being the Atma. So this is, as you said, a debate between uh, this line of thinking and the karma, the Advaitic line of thinking and the Karma Kanda line of thinking.
1: Right. I think much later we had the concept of Vishishtadvaita also coming in, where yeah. I think there was one school of thought which Said that God and creation can never be one.
2: Yeah, they're forever separate. Forever
1: yes. separate. Then the middle path of the Vishist who said that yes, we are separate, but yes. with effort, with sadhana, with spiritual, uh, you know, the process of spirituality, you can reach that oneness. Hmm. But then the Advaitins, the school of Shankaracharya, which said that it is always one, but it is illusion which causes this uh, apparent duality. Yes. Right. So I think that is where we were. And Swami spoke of how. And, and a very interesting thing which Swami said about how Ubhay Bharati, the wife of Mandana Mishra, hmm. actually comes in to mediate between the two right. or be the judge. Right. And it's a, it's a very beautiful symbolism because what Swami often refers to this episode to draw the point that the importance that women were given in the society, society then. Okay. You know That's a misconception which we have that women were kept away from education and they were not repressed. Uh, no. But it was not true and Swami quotes Many women and one among them is Ubai Bharti where he says. Right. And the other point is Swami says here is, you know, who would agree for a settlement like this? You are debating with a man, who will accept that that man's, that opponent's wife come and be a judge? Judge, yeah. You know, it it only shows two things. One thing is the faith that he had in the righteousness of Ubai Bharti. Yes. And the second thing is the confidence he had in himself, (laughs) Adi Shankara, in the philosophy that he was bringing to debate on.
2: As he says, uh, it's a testament to Ubayab Bharati's fairness, her sense of uh, justice. Yes.
1: So I think that's pretty much where Swami stopped the clip uh, last time. Right. So maybe quickly we'll go to the next clip in this discourse. Yes. And uh, I see a lot of heavy terminology here. And let's hope we can understand what Swami is telling and at least pray to Swami so.
2: Right.
3: What was the nature of Shankaracharya? Shankaracharya decided to be the judge because he understood that the power of Buddhi is more important than the power of medas. Because medas, secondly, buddhi, chala, sektivanta, main pratiyate twenty, satyaani guddhin chali vidyartho. Therefore, students have to realize that the power of intelligence, that is buddhi, is far. Samanya buddhi kaadi thi. This is not the type of buddhi which is ordinarily understood. Astha, eight, pastha twenty, Asakti, e Buddhi. The real intelligence of Buddhi is associated with Asakti and steadiness. Rutamu, Yeki That intelligence is purified by. The association of rutam and satyam, truth, inga Yogamu mu mahataramena sekti, mahatattamu. Ir endingito kudne etvantiyoka pavitrame yokka, buddhi. This buddhi is the very embodiment of the purity and the sacredness associated with yoga and mahatatwa. Buddhi here doesn't refer to merely thinking power. It is not merely power of deliberation. It is not even the power of discrimination. It is not even the power of science. It is that power of thinking which is associated with power of discrimination and Upaya Bharati agreed that Mandanamaya Mishra was defeated. After seeing the argumentation, she decided her own husband was defeated. This decision is based upon Satyam and Ritam. Aamena, Shankara was extremely pleased with her capacity to decide wo poka, wo dukawari, Karincha, mani, She ordered that according to the agreement Mandaramishra should become a disciple of Shankaracharya and accept this Sanyasattva. Mata, Satyamu Doing what you say refers to Satyam truth. She ordered as per the decision, take up Sanyasa. Halakshmi, Annitwent Yoka, Biridun Andukunanduku, Lokamuno Sri Jataki, Sarin Ada Sand, Andinchala and Eightwent Uddeshimto, Tarabakta Sanyasinapudu, Tanukudu Sanyaska or Sajam and Bavinchi, Aubayvartha Kudanu, Sanyas and a Seeker in Chin. Ubayavarati, as she is Ghulakshmi and Dharmapatni, it was her duty to also become a Sanyasin. Once her husband becomes sannyasi, so, so she arushar- it is the duty and it is natural for the wife to follow the sannyasa. There was no need for her to accept sannyasa at all. In order to set an example for the world, she accepted sannyasa. Parisudha Kudy Ralu Uvayaparati. was a pure hearted soul. Ame Ahankara Sari Nirupin Sankal Yes She resolved. That her husband, who was basing all his scholarship on Vedas, should who is full of ego, should be taught a lesson, and she gave the correct decision. Tanu, asramu nidhminchuni, asramu nunchi, nijilos naanum chesi nimittamai. Tanu anu sari nchaythundi. Koni sishura andato anu vakanaaru They built a hermitage by this side of a river and along with the other disciples they would go to the river and bathe every day. There was a Sanyasim who was found on her way to the river. It was a very ordinary uh, type of water jug was there tirini ekkadaina baiṭa pette, yavarena dongulistaro emo aneṭuṇṭi yokka prayam cheta dāni painu unnatinadi abhimanam cheta aa sora kai talakinda veṭṭukoni paṇḍukunnaḍu ee yokka sarva sanga parityagi this great sanyasin who had given up everything was attached to that small ordinary water jug fearing that that may be stolen away by someone else he used it as a pillow and he was sleeping on that. Atani decided that she should teach him the correct decided that she should teach him the correct path. Bharati, he decided that she should teach him the correct path. Ubayabarati decided that she should teach in the hearing of that sannyasi who was just sleeping, she began telling her disciples, Look at this particular person, he has given up everything in the world, but as attachment, to <laughs> <this>. <laughs> If he has so much of attachment for such a small, petty thing, how much more of attachment would he have on more important things? She commented. His action is not in tune with the ashram the, he has accepted. This person who has renounced everything, he heard it. chala, rindu kudunu he was filled with anger and also excitement. He developed a sort of anger and hatred against her. After all, a woman commenting upon me. When she was returning after bath from the river, the moment she approached him, he threw away that particular jerk at her feet, declaring, look at my renunciation. I don't care for this thing. He threw it away. <laughs> <laughs> then Ubhay Bharati commented, well, you not merely have attachment, but you, have, you are full of ego also. He also said, as long as men have attachment and ego and mindness, they would never be able to realize Atma. This great renouncer of the world realized the truth. She ran to her, fell at her feet, not caring whether it was a man or a woman. Forgive my fault, he said.
1: That was that uh, wonderful story. And... You know, even as I was listening to that story, it, it just fills me with how much Swami fits in, in one story. And sometimes he, he narrates it with so much detail hmm. that He has the ability to carry you away with it.
2: Yeah, some very important uh, points which are very useful for us in our everyday life as well as you know our uh, spiritual journey. Actually, it is a continuation of what Swami was talking about in the previous part of the discourse. And here Swami places a lot of emphasis on distinguishing or rather, placing Buddhi on a higher pedestal than intellect. Right. Medhas. Yes. So, actually, in the previous part of the discourse, Swami is uh, already saying that Ubhayabharati was somebody who embodied this particular uh, relationship between Buddhi and Medhas. Mandana Mishra was a person who possessed great intellectual uh, capabilities. It was Ubhayabharati who not only had that intellectual capability but also had the power of discrimination or Buddhi. Her intellect was tempered by Buddhi and which is the reason why uh, Shankaracharya was able to uh, place a trust on her that she would be able to discriminate as to what is right and what is wrong and be able to be an impartial judge to the uh, debate which had a lot of stake.
1: Right, right.
2: So, this emphasis is like uh, Swami should remember that he is actually delivering it to students. And it is so important because this is a time in our society that we place so much emphasis on merely possessing intellectual. We do not intellectual capabilities and we do not try to coach students or train students in being able to temper that with a certain amount of discrimination, Uh, like what we call as integral education, which we follow in our uh, university. university. It, It does that. It tries to balance out giving the day-to-day knowledge that we need to live our life with this discriminative power. Mm. So, that uh, that is something which modern education, there is a small failing in there that we emphasize so much on uh, converting that intellectual ability into success, uh, fame and wealth, which are all accrued only to us, only to that particular individual or his uh, family. So, Buddhi as Perhaps if you take the example of youth, let us consider a sportsman, for Mm -hmm. example. Right. Let us take cricketers. Now, if we look at, say, somebody like Sachin Tendulkar and uh, he's obviously well-liked, a very capable cricketer, but I'm pretty sure that there were so many, you know, contemporaries uh, of his who must have had equal ability. Then what is that which separated Sachin Tendulkar from the rest of the crowd? Perhaps they had the same eye for uh, the cricket ball as Sachin Tendulkar had. And perhaps they exhibited the same amount of talent in uh, practice in the field. In fact, I remember that there used to be a player called Vinod Kamli who was very, very... uh, I mean, he had played with Sachin Tendulkar, practiced under the same... Yes, and and practiced under the same coach. And he was always talked about as having very similar uh, capabilities as Sachin. Abilities as Sachin. But you see cricket when it is played on the field on really on the pitch it converts from a game of your talents and your capabilities entirely into a mental game Mm -hmm. how in in you know in a crowd which is uh, with so much pressure on you which is which adulates you so much and you know you have to perform to that crowd and you are looking at uh, bowlers of you know equal or greater talent how do you now in this situation how do you hold yourself together and play you see, how do you concentrate only on that ball that is coming towards you and play? So, that is that is where Buddhi comes in. That is the discriminating power which allows you to use your medhas, uh, your intellectual and your other talents in a particular, in a well-directed manner. That is where it comes. Or if you can take, uh, again, an example that is relevant to youth would be your studies there are so many things that you are good at but if you can use your buddhi at that moment to judge what is it that you need to do what is most appropriate right. to do right right so that is where the buddhi comes uh, here uh, swami actually he is distinguishing some characteristics of this buddhi so we talked about two aspects uh, uh, swastha and sthiratva that is firmness or steadfastness that that i think is covered in in the examples that we just talked about There is something that I wanted that came to me as uh, Swami was giving this, uh, talking about Buddhi and Medhas. Mm -hmm. An example of two scientists. Okay. These are two scientists who developed the polio vaccine. Mm -hmm. So, Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin, they were contemporaries. In fact, both of them, uh, they are from American universities and they developed the polio vaccine that and today, if you look at uh, a country like India even about a decade ago there was there was this uh, fear that it would develop into an epidemic in india okay and it was just as feared in the united states uh, maybe uh, you know three or four decades ago and because of these two scientists who developed the vaccine mm-hmm. uh, which is an enormous uh, success at that time it was considered a breakthrough in medicine itself okay. and these two gentlemen these two scientists they had that humanity to say that we will not license this particular uh, vaccine. So, uh, as one, one article I mean, that has, they, they didn't
1: patent it? or they?
2: Yes, that is to say they did not uh, patent it. So, okay. you know, they would so have… They don't get the royalty. Exactly. So, had they patented it, they would have been able to get a royalty on every single uh, time that uh, particular inoculation or vaccination was done. And you can imagine the amount of difference that has made. Uh, So, one article talked about how that foregoing, that uh, intellectual rights or uh, patent on that, that reduced the uh, cost of the medicine medicine by about 25%. -hmm. And that is why even it could penetrate so deep into countries like India and several African countries. India is on the threshold of being declared a polio-free country in January 2014. Uh, if there's no incidence of polio we will be declared a polio-free country country. and likewise uh, our neighbor Pakistan is like India is supporting Pakistan in being able to become a polio-free country and such penetration would not have been possible had that vaccine been an expensive uh, vaccine in fact Jonas Salk was asked like would you patent this particular uh, vaccine Mm -hmm. he said uh, it belongs to the people do you uh, patent the sun that's what uh, wow. very rhetorical uh, question said it, it didn't even occur to him that such a, such a thing should be done so you see they had the intellect it, it is such a finely developed intelligence which could come up with this vaccination a very breakthrough form of thinking of you know in vaccination you introduce that virus back into the body right and right. then have the body develop its defenses so it's a very radical way of thinking so it's, it takes that kind of uh, intellect to develop that vaccine but it took that kind of buddhi, that discriminative power which led them to think beyond themselves to be able to give this uh, uh, benefit to the entire humanity. And the world owes a lot to them uh, right, today.
1: Right. In fact, I remember when you know we mentioned this before many times and Swami was here to inaugurate the studio. Hmm. That's precisely what he said. Swami said, you have knowledge. Yes. Knowledge is available for anybody who is there to pursue it. Hmm. But it doesn't stop there. Yes. Swami said, you have to skill that knowledge. Yes. You have to put that knowledge in in such a way in use that it benefits people around. Yes. People today are killing the knowledge. Yeah. You know by using it for personal gains. Swami said, when you skill the knowledge, then it lead to balance.
2: Yes. I remember an interaction that a very inter- interesting uh, interaction I had uh, when I first joined as a student here okay. in uh, in the university about a decade, a little more than a decade ago. I was a new student, and Swami he inquired of me, so what did you do? Uh, before you joined uh, the institute for mba so i said "Uh, swami i did my engineering Mm -hmm. and swami asked me so what is this uh, engineering and i was just saying swami it's an application of uh, knowledge or science or something swami said no 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 engineering as it is practiced today is nothing but technology okay he said like uh, people are just using it to basically uh, create products that trick uh, each and every one of us so and when you say application of that particular knowledge, he says that when you apply it for the benefit of humanity, is when it gets elevated to technology. Mm-hmm. Until then, it remains as technology. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, that's about uh, Medhas and buddhi. But then Swami goes on to talk a little about uh, egoism as such. You know, because the story which Swami is telling is very nice. You know, where yes. Swami is telling that there is a sarvasanga Parityagi. That's so how Swami calls this monk, mm-hmm. yeah. one who is. Uh, renounced everything but he's so attached to that vessel in which you drink water he's using mm. it as a pillow and he's sleeping you know it it actually gives a very profound message but Swami is saying that ego can be so tricky you know you think that you've conquered it yeah but it can actually take a different form in it and you know without your knowledge creep into you yes. because that's exactly what happens here here is uh Bharti looking at this man and saying that you know He has, after all, not given yeah. up everything. And hmm. the moment he hears that, he breaks that pot yes. to kind of convince himself that, no, no, I have actually detached. But in the process, the ego takes the other form by saying that, now see, you are detached. Yeah. And
2: no. uh, this actually it brings about uh, one important point, you know, the importance of a guru in one's life. Like, uh, see, you said, uh, Swami said rather, that he's a Sarvasanga Parityagi. So you can see this monk is there totally on his own. And uh, perhaps trying to discriminate and enter into that state of uh, enlightenment. But it was a blind spot for him. He never realized that this, that this jug, uh, which is, so uh, so to speak, his only position in the world, was still a sign of attachment. There had to be someone from outside, uh, within quotes, who had to come and tell him that, you know, there is this one last barrier that you need to break. Right. Yeah. And uh, again, uh, one more facet of the Guru. We say in our ordinary parlance, a guru is compassionate towards a disciple. But this kind of compassion uh, is a very distinct uh, kind of compassion from what you and I show towards uh, other people. So, uh, we we could characterize the feelings of compassion that we normally experience, perhaps a sympathy or uh, empathy, you know, any one of those feelings. But here, what uh, they say, a guru is a person who has ruthless compassion towards Mm -hmm. his devotees. It's a very... Uh, paradoxical oxymoronical uh, kind of uh, you know phrase to say that a guru has ruthless compassion and it is compassion because it helps that in this case a particular uh, this particular disciple or this particular individual to go beyond uh, what state that he was in at that time but it is also ruthless as in uh, she is not afraid to call out his deficiency in front of her disciples you know, in front of everybody, it actually annoys him. Absolutely. And yeah, the the only thing you know, it uh, perhaps you and I also do this in our everyday life. We do ridicule uh, somebody, but what distinguishes here is the result that she was able to obtain. Like she was actually able to break a very significant barrier for that disciple.
1: In fact, no, no even as you're saying, I'm reminded of mm. uh, a discourse which Swami gave in the Institute Auditorium mm, mm. for the students. Right. And luckily, we have a copy of that. Mm. You know, in that Swami starts in a very dramatic way where he says, People say anger is bad. huh Okay? And Swami says, I say anger is good.
2: Okay.
1: People say compassion is good.
2: Yeah.
1: I say that compassion is bad.
2: Oh. <laughs> you know, that's how Swami
1: starts, and then Swami, you know, dwells into it. Swami says, compassion that is misplaced is always harmful. Right. And anger that is selfless always results in good.
2: Right. And Swami
1: says the anger of a mother is always selfless. And right. as you said, that is when it can achieve what is uh, you know what it's meant for. Like Absolutely. in this case, yes, where it was, it was not to glorify oneself yeah. and to say that you know I am able to find a fault in you. Yeah, invariably I think we do that generally. Yeah, you know, and that's when it doesn't give the desired result. If I'm able to point out a re- mistake in somebody with absolutely no gain from it, you know, no uh, feeding of my ego in the process, I think that's when it'll actually have the best benefit.
2: Best benefit in the sense that the other person is able to get the benefit. See, even if, like, uh, so-called, there's no material benefit that you get, you have the benefit of saying that, I was right, finally, even to yourself, right, even if to no one else. I told you, I told you. (laughs) And you don't have an audience, you can just pride yourself in that, yeah, I was right and he's wrong, you know. So, uh also like uh, one more uh, you know thing that occurred to me over here uh, there are actually two stages in this particular event if you look at it <clears throat> the first part is Ubhay Bharati pointing out to her disciples mm-hmm. of course within earshot of that uh, particular monk that look he has attachment towards that particular jug so this is what uh, swami terms as abhimana okay. he uses the word abhimanam and he says like or what we call as Mamakara, that feeling of uh, mind. Right. And she says that this is uh, this is what uh, this particular uh, person is, individual, is suffering from that feeling of Mamakara. And the, her next action is then to actually rile, you know, provoke that uh, disciple… come back you know that that devotee actually the rather that individual actually gets up and he says you know how can it be how can this uh, woman how can she tell me what is right and uh, what is wrong and by this she actually takes us to the origin as to how this this phenomenon of mamakara or abhimana what is at its root and that is the feeling of ahankara Right, right. So this is a two-stage event, and it brings out these two qualities, which uh, Swami says are are the obstacles to us uh, realizing our true self. Yes,
1: absolutely. In fact, you know that's one of the uh, spiritual masters says that hmm. he says this very thing. You know, ego is a very funny thing. Hmm. He says, if you are a man who is doing well in business, if you're right. a rich man, right. you know, the ego will take the form that I'm a rich man. Okay, but if you renounce everything and you become a spiritual uh, seeker, okay. yeah. the ego will take the form that I am a spiritual seeker. See, he's still in the world,
2: <laughs> you know,
1: yeah. because that's it's so subtle and it can play on you. Yes, and uh, there's a beautiful incident which one of our lecturers once shared with us. Hmm. We have narrated it many times here before, I think, but it's so beautiful because in this point, which you mentioned, that mm-hmm. the guru can correct selflessly. Yeah, and that can make the difference.
2: That makes the difference.
1: That mm. does make the difference, and also when the disciple is able to see that selflessness in the guru, yeah. he can benefit maximum. Absolutely. Yes. Now I'm reminded of uh, this particular uh, lecturer's father. Mm. He was a person who was absolutely perfect in his, uh, you know, the way he had settled his life. He had retired. He decided that he would put away money for his children, mm. and he would proceed towards the Himalayas mm. and take up a spiritual journey. Right. And so, he had decided that he'll come and tell Swami about his plan and mm. take Swami's blessings and go. And Swami calls him for an interview. And he says, Swami, I've done all these arrangements. My His children were studying in Swami's college. Right. And one of them was a lecturer. And he said, Swami, I've settled all this. I've sold away my house and everything is done. And I'm ready to go now. Okay. <laughs> okay Swami said, uh, do you have to go to Himalayas to realize yourself? Mm-hmm. Okay, Swami asked him, what are you going for? He said, Swami, I should attend Sakshatkaram. Yeah. Swami said, do you have to go there? And then Swami said, if you go to Himalayas and do your sadhana, who is going to give you (laughs) sakshatkaram? And this man said, Swami, you have to give me. (laughs) And Swami said, then if you stay here, can I not give it to you? (laughs) And this person said, yes, Swami, you can. So then Swami told him, you stay here Hmm. and you do your sadhana here and do work for me. I will give you sakshatkaram. Right, you know that authority with which Swami said, Ami said, I will give you.
2: Yes, yes, I remember this particular <laughs> teacher. He had uh, told us. In, yeah,
1: uh, and then you know, after this, uh, this man continued to be here. He was, and uh, this lecturer of us used to say, what a perfect spiritual aspirant he was, because he would wake up three thirty in the morning, mm. sit for meditation for two hours, three hours, then do Suprabhatam and you know, would have a very strict, uh, regimen you know, you know regimen in his life. A very strict, self-disciplined, uh, man and he was going like this for a few years he was working uh, in the uh, pro office i think right he was there for a few years then one fine day swami calls him for an interview mm. and uh, all alone closes the door and swami looks at him and says how long are you going to continue in kindergarten <laughs> and that's how swami starts the dialogue how long are you going to continue in kindergarten
2: yeah
1: and this person is perplexed and he says swami i don't understand what you're trying to say right. and swami said ye uh, japalu you know bhajana japalu How many years are you going to continue all this? And this person is shocked. He's saying, Swami, Dhyanam, Japam, you always talk about it as important and all that. And that's why I do this. Swami said, this is kindergarten. Mm -hmm. Stop all this, he said. He said, okay, Swami, whatever you say. And then Swami told him, you wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning. Uh You have your bath. Come and sit on your corridor, on your veranda. Uh And look at every person who goes by. Mm. And he says the same Atma which is in him is the same Atma which is in me wonderful and there is no difference
2: actually what you uh, told me reminds me of something that uh, Divine Master once said he said like if you look at all these spiritual aspirants they are ready to give up anything they are ready to give up riches they are ready to give up their position fame name they are ready to give up uh, you know their lust and all these qualities they will give up everything except that one thought that they are not enlightened (laughs) 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 So, they'll, you know, that is that one thing that they'll firmly hold on to and every single of their practices goes on reinforcing this one point. I am not enlightened. I am not enlightened, (laughs) you know. So, that is a very effective uh, thing is, I mean, very effective uh, instruction that Swami has given to that particular teacher.
1: Right. And, you know, going back to that point, you know, that's what a guru can do. You know, when he points out, maybe somebody else doing that will hurt yeah. But if you have that complete faith in that master that, you know, he is not doing anything which is actually even remotely selfish.
2: Yes. And uh, one thing like we cannot judge a guru by his actions because it is right. completely right. between the guru and the disciple. Like I recall in one instance, this is between Swami and a particular student. It was during Darshan time. Mm-hmm. This was a preparation for the very first uh, Grama Seva. Mm-hmm. And uh, a Swami had uh, instructed the students to get something from his residence in Purnachandra. Okay. And even as they're going, Swami had told them uh, that there is some water had spilt and Swami wanted them all to be very careful. But you know how students, how we all are, we want to show <laughs> uh, to Swami our devotion and how much enthusiasm we have in the work that he has given. And this one particular student, he ran back from the residence holding something in his hand and he, in all his uh, you know, fervor to go towards Swami, he didn't see that puddle of water that was there in front of him and within a few seconds as you're you're watching the saris that he was holding it was all in the air his legs were in the air and everything tumbled to the ground and i was watching swami uh, the student was so dear to him i I was watching what would swami's reaction be can you guess what swami said next
1: i mean i have no clue i'm really waiting to know (laughs) yeah
2: because see i expected that you know swami like like uh, he would go way up way yes compassion know, right. he would go up <laughs> Swami is very comical Swami said huh, exactly this should happen you did not listen to me and this is what happened you know <laughs> it like that at that moment I was a little bit uh, taken aback because I thought Swami should actually go and comfort the boy but this again that aspect of ruthless compassion see when we do that to people we are already treating that person as weak as a person who cannot uh, hold himself together and bring back you know come back to having sustained a fall that he cannot rise up again. But Swami made that boy rise up again and walk up to him and apologize for not having listened to his Guru's words. <laughs> so that was a lesson that had to be imparted that day and the only way to do it was through this, that you have to implicitly obey the Guru's words.
1: You know, Just talking about uh, this nature of a Guru, I mean, somehow we have gone on to that. Yeah. No, I'm reminded of uh, a devotee who was actually going through a very, very tough patch in her life and uh, there were problems, financial problems, her husband was not having a job and every time they would come to, the family would come to Swami and you know, uh, put forth their problems, Swami would give a solution. Right. You know, Swami would give a solution or give a date, uh-huh. you know, by this date this is going to be fine or uh, your business is going to pick up by this date Right. and those dates would just come and go. Yeah. And apparently, it looked like Swami was, you know, literally lying to them. You know, what Swami was saying was not happening. Mm. You know, we often ask this. You know, Swami said this, and it did not happen. And yeah. Swami said, "I'll give you this tomorrow," and that tomorrow came and went.
2: Absolutely,
1: that's a grievance which all of us, uh, in in our ignorance, carry with us. Yeah. And so this lady, you know, had enough of this after a period of time, mm. and she goes up to Swami and said, "Swami, why do you lie to us?" Mm. And she was very genuinely, and she was asking because in the middle of all these problems, she said, "Swami." why do you lie to us tell yeah. us this you know yeah. we, we learn morality and all that from you but why do you lie to us and Swami was not at all offended you know he was mm. not uh, hurt by the way this question was posed to him he kept quiet and she said you tell me today Swami you say something why doesn't it happen hmm. you tell that things will change on such and such a date yeah. you know why doesn't it happen and Swami said see I know exactly when your problems will get solved
2: hmm.
1: okay and I have to pull you through till that date and whatever hope is required to you hmm. i have to give it to you and as a guru my duty is to do whatever it takes wonderful. to get you through
2: wonderful and if so that profound. takes
1: for me to lie yeah. i will not hesitate
2: great and even if i have to face that calumny that right. accusation from the, the accusation very person from the very person
1: you know the guru is helping yes. he says i don't care yes. because it is good for you i will do it you know that's that's what is that ruthless compassion as you put it you know it doesn't care it even, even for
2: oneself Right. I mean, for his own image and you
1: know, his own. Yeah. yeah, typically, I I used to imagine, you know, the the child in the mother's womb. It might kick once in a while, almost saying that, "You know, I'm enough of this confinement." But the mother is not going to let out the child unless it's ready for it. You know, the time is perfect for it. It's like that. The the way Swami has taken care of all of us. I think it's something which everybody goes through. You know.
2: It's it's uh, what you said is so moving, honestly, and. Uh, See, we actually owe it to our mother, to Swami. Uh, this particular, the program itself is titled in that way, Shravanam Mananam Nididhyasanam. And I recall, uh, you know, the some clippings. In fact, I think what Radio I mm-hmm. had uh, produced and uh, shown once in one of the, uh, you know, uh, what shall I say, Mandir programs. And this is a clipping of Swami in the early days going to the villages. At that time, He would travel village to village with a very punishing schedule. And He would uh, speak to the, you know, give a public discourse to the uh, villagers at that time. And of course, there was absolutely, it it used to be unplanned. I mean, the villagers would get a few minutes notice that uh, Sethi Sai Baba is coming to their particular village. There is no mic and no platform, no stage. And Swami would climb atop the car that in which He was travelling. And from there, He would speak uh, to the devotees. And you can imagine what kind of conviction, what kind of uh, dedication that requires, if these can be applied to God. But uh, Swami was demonstrating that what it takes, and it can only be a mother who does this, And it is our duty to kind of make that, uh, you know, make sure that all that effort that he put in for each one of us, like that it should fructify. And the only way that it can is like he has given us so many discourses, use this opportunity to churn that in our mind, which is opportunity you have given me, for example, by having me on this program. But more importantly, to have what we discussed today being put into practice in our daily lives in every little way that we can every little effort just to please him
1: right and you know even as you said imagining that that rigor with which Swami lived his life you know how he stretched himself to the limit to do of course I I find it very difficult to associate the word sacrifice with Swami because Mm. sacrifice is for people like us who we think that this is me and this is somebody else and I I have done something for the other for Swami it was never like that but seeing it from our standpoint, or from the level we are in, we still believe that you know, Swami is our master and we are the disciple or Swami is the mother and we are the child. Hmm. Whatever is the relationship, I think as you said, it it takes it makes sense that we take whatever effort it takes to pay gratitude to whatever Swami has done you know, and all this. And endlessly, if we look at this discourse... Swami said this in 1960. Swami said this in 1990. Swami hmm. said this is 2000. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and he repeated yes. it endlessly. And and we just hope that when we go through these discourses, that we are able to do that mananam and you know pray that nididhyasanam happens.
2: And the, because the only happiness uh, that uh, that uh, you know the child can give its mother by is its by itself being happy. Right, and that right. that is the only and thing that Swami seeks for. In fact, you know that's,
1: that's you actually nailed it. And I remember. Mr Jim Sinclair hmm. the millionaire from US he says this you know that was one of the things which actually struck him hmm. the first interview swami called him for and here was he a millionaire who was ready to write a blank check to swami and give or give whatever swami asked for you know hmm. you could build a hospital if swami wants yeah. and then in the interview room he's all alone and uh, you know he asked swami what do you want what can i do for you hmm. what can i offer you what is it that you expect from me and Swami looked at him and Swami said be happy
2: that is all yeah
1: and you know that is what actually struck him so much hmm. <laughs> he said here is somebody you can really you know expect nothing out of me but
2: happiness uh, in fact uh, this brought to mind one uh, very you know memorable incident for me this was soon after i had uh, like swami had appointed me in the Satisai central trust okay it uh, we had drawn our first salary and usually, uh, in India, it's a tradition that with our first salary, right, we buy right. gifts for our, uh, we offer it to our own parents. parents. But here, I took permission from my parents and I said, I'm mm-hmm. going to give it to Swami first. Okay. And uh, my friend also, he did the same. And both of us, we uh, put the, you know, we drew the cash and put it in an envelope and handed it over to Swami. So, Swami just, uh, he took it with him and he went inside the interview room. So, the next day, we were seated in the bhajan hall and Swami looked at us and He called us near Him. And uh, He said, go inside. So, we went into the interview room. So, Swami had a very stern face. He said, what is it that you all gave me yesterday? So, my friend said, Swami, it was our uh, first salary. We wanted to offer it to you. And then He smiled. He he had been holding His hand behind His back. Okay. And He took out the exact R2 envelopes, mm-hmm. handed mine to me and you know my friends to Him. And He said... Uh, I don't want this money from you and I remember with a choked voice Swami saying all I want is your love that is all and I, I, I can always I'll never forget that particular incident it drives me every single day to be of uh, service to Swami because that was all that he wanted beautiful. so pure yeah. <laughs>
1: beautiful Ari I think I, think I shouldn't add anything to that and take away that beautiful moment which you narrated it's so wonderful and dear listeners a couple of weeks back when we had venkatraman sir here you know this is what he said he said when you listen to this these discourses when you listen to the amount of detail Swami is going into amount of uh, you know pain Swami is taking to explain all this it only shows how much love Swami had because he he had no reason to do all these other than the fact that he really loved us. And one real gratitude we can show to him is take these messages of Swami as our very life breath and live by it and try as much as possible. You know, It's not that we all live in that state of non-duality or live in the state of perfectly being ruled by the intellect, by the Buddhi, as Swami would say. But it all is in Shraddha, as Swami said, you know, the the words which Swami use here Asta
2: and in the zeal and faith as a mother who actually enjoys her child uh, taking the first faltering first, step, first step but will finally actually hold us and hold us uh, like a child like a mother holding the child to itself I am pretty sure that Swami will one day look at us taking these faltering steps and hold us to his bosom
1: wonderful and with that prayer and with that promise to Swami we offer this humble effort of ours at Swami's lotus feet and We pray that he blesses all of us. This is Prem from Team Radio Sai. And with me for the past one hour was Brother Hari Shankar from the Sri Satasai Central Trust. Thank you for joining us. Happy listening.
0: Insidearm, you just heard an episode of our radio series Shravanam Mananam Nidityasanam, that is listen reflect and absorb this is a segment that is broadcast live on Thursdays at 7:30 p.m on Asia's stream of Radio Sai Global Harmony and this episode was hosted by Radio Sai's Prem and Hari Shankar from the Sri Sathya Sai Central Trust today's episode was first broadcast live on 12 December 2013 The discourses undertaken for study in this program are from the series of discourses delivered as part of Summer Course in Indian Culture and Spirituality in the year 1990 and the clips played in this episode were from the discourse delivered on 27th May 1990. To listen to the next part of this program, tune in same time next week. Please do write to us and do let us know what you think about this program by writing to Listener at radiosci.org. Thank you and sidearm from Prashanthindalayan.